0: We're in First Thessalonians chapter four tonight. If you want to open your Bibles there or navigate on your device. First Thessalonians chapter four, we're going to look at verses nine through twelve. That's our text. Title of our message is Deadbeat Disciples. Paul had taught the church in Thessalonica about the imminent coming of Jesus to rapture the church from earth to heaven. And by imminent, of course, we mean any moment. We're going to see the doctrine of the imminent rapture in verses 13 through 18, some of our favorite scriptures uh, in the book of First Thessalonians. I've probably shared from it a hundred times at funerals. It's a great graveside text uh, but uh, it, it, where Paul explains the doctrine of the rapture and its imminence and the order of events when Jesus comes to resurrect the dead in Christ. The church at Thessalonica had no doubt that Jesus could return for them at any moment. So much so that some of them misunderstood the implications of his coming and they decided to quit their jobs and wait around for Jesus to rapture them. And so, you know, a lot of times people will say things like, oh, the, there's no real proof that the church thought that the Jesus was going to come back in their own lifetime. Uh, there's proof everywhere. All you really need is one verse that shows imminence uh, to, to prove that the rapture is imminent. There's tons of them. But the situation here in Thessalonica was such that they actually quit working. They said, well, if Jesus is coming for us any moment, we'll just quit working and wait for him. They, uh, their idleness was becoming a burden to the other believers as they meddled in their affairs and were... Uh, is the word mooch still in vogue? Yeah, they mooched off of them. By Second Thessalonians... Paul would have to say, and I quote, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. In our passage, he first takes a more gentle, general approach and exhorted the idlers to brotherly love and to love one another. And so maybe it's a good, in a situation like this, it's a good example for us. Take a... a, a, a tactful, loving approach, and if that doesn't work, then get in somebody's face. You know, so Paul generally will say, "Hey, let's love each other, let's get along, let's all serve one another." And then when he hears the report that there's still people mooching, he says, "You know, those guys don't feed them; let them starve, uh, and then they'll go out and get their jobs and feed themselves." So uh, Paul, very down to earth. Um, brotherly love is the Greek word Philadelphia it originally referred to the natural affection between blood relatives but it came to be applied to the supernatural affection between Christians when you become a Christian every other believer becomes your spiritual brother or sister and so there's a Phileo Philadelphia love uh, that we share love one another is uh, the word agape it describes the kind of love God has for you a willing love that never depends upon outward appearance or emotional attraction. Uh, It's a good thing that God doesn't you know love us in a way that depends on our being attractive to God because we're just not. Uh, Now you experience a new supernatural affection Philadelphia for your brothers and sisters and you express it willingly that's the agape part and we're calling this potent combination of loves tonight Christian affection. And so, Philadelphia and agape Christian affection. Your Philadelphia and agape affection for your brothers and sisters means you never take advantage of them by meddling in their affairs and mooching off of them. It just should go without saying that you love one another so much that you wouldn't want to take advantage of anyone else. How sad. And not saying that they're always Christians, but how sad that the church becomes a place where people come to take advantage of other people because Christians, um, I guess, you could say Christians are either gullible or that they just have a lot of natural affection and they they kind of give you the benefit of the doubt. And if you come and tell a story, they believe you. And and some people, they take advantage of this. We had a a couple, this is just one example, we had a couple at uh, Calvary San Bernardino many, many years ago. And and uh, basically they were selling uh, I can't remember what kind of insurance it was it was some uh, it'll come to me but it was one of those you know insurance schemes and scams and and uh, uh, and so they came to the church and uh, they you know very friendly very outgoing they got to know everybody and one by one they were going to families in the church selling uh, this insurance and then once they exhausted pretty much everybody in the church, they decided that our church really wasn't for them. And, you know, they were, felt more welcome at the next church that they were going to conquer for A.L. Williams insurance. That's who it was, yeah. I remember that. And uh, and it was sad, you know, because the insurance was junk, and they were just taking advantage of Christians, uh, you know, who were gullible and, and wanted to thought that they were having fellowship with them you know their technique was this you know to be invited over or to invite people over for dinner and then the next thing you know you were in a sales meeting uh, and so it was it was rough most of the believers are going to get Paul's point uh, but as we've seen some are going to need a stronger exhortation in his second letter so let's get into it. verse 9 concerning brotherly love you have no need that I should write to you for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Taught by God is a unique phrase that is found only here and nowhere else in the Bible. It doesn't refer or look back to any past teaching. For sure, God's word in the Old Testament teaches you to love one another, and Jesus commanded you to love one another. But this phrase signifies a present ongoing prompting in your heart by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We might even call it a spiritual instinct. By definition, an instinct is independent of any outward instruction. It is something inward. It's inbred. It's your first impulse, something involuntary. If you're a believer, then the Holy Spirit indwells you and you have this instinct to love one another. It's just something that comes with being a Christian because the Lord lives within you. Along with your new instinct, you have your old fleshly impulses. There's a struggle between your new instinct and your old impulses, and obviously it's up to you to yield to your new instinct and superabound in love for your brothers and sisters. Verse 10, Indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. Macedonia was the Roman province of which Thessalonica happened to be the capital city. Their geographical location and the political status of their city brought them many opportunities to minister to other believers from all over the realm. Instinctive brotherly love is not selective. It encompasses all believers everywhere. To find expression, though, you must get involved with your brothers and sisters. And so, Paul is saying, uh, anybody who's a Christian anywhere in Macedonia you guys uh, have this natural instinct and affection for them, and that's wonderful to see. Uh, and and it, it's not selective. A lot of believers, however, who have spiritual life, they tend to remain independent rather than becoming involved. I know and you probably know lots of Christians who have effectively blown off coming to church, uh, or at least on a regular basis. They think they're fine on their own. Now, I'm, I try and be honest about this churches have... churches can be places that really burn people out. Churches are, are bad about forcing people to do things and taking advantage. And so, while, you know, most of the time the message is you, you, you shouldn't do this and you should be that. You know, the the church sometimes, as a whole, the leadership of the church has to be careful that it's not always putting burdens on people. And so some people have genuine complaints and, and they, you know, they're real. Uh, hey, I went to this church and this is what they were doing and we felt cornered and they were making people do this and that and, you know, they weren't teaching the word and everything was about, you know, the building project or the money or something like that. And, and it leaves a bad taste in people's mouths. And so all I can tell you is find a church that's not doing that. You know that the answer isn't to not go to church it's to find a different church to find a, a better church the right church for you uh, and and so uh, you know the but there's just a lot of Christians on the other hand who hey I'm a Christian I don't need church uh, you know I everywhere I go is church the golf course is church you know I'm worshiping God on on the golf course you can worship God on the golf course uh, but uh, <laughs> What's your handicap? I don't know. You know, it's just, it's just crazy. So, so th- there's extremes. So, uh, and everybody has to gauge their own involvement in the church. What I hope we try here, and you can correct me whenever I'm wrong, what we try here to portray is that, you know, we come together to minister to the body of Christ so that you can go out and minister where you're called. Uh, you know not everybody's called to be a pastor or a missionary and Sunday I'm going to talk a little bit about this you're not more spiritual if you're a pastor or a missionary I think that the United and the church in America has for years given the impression that really spiritual people become ministers or missionaries and the rest of you well you know you just didn't qualify I guess you know but the, the truth is the church is the called-out body of believers who need a pastor they need some elders so they need some different things to go on But we come together to be built up in our most holy faith to go back out into the world to minister where god has sent all of us uh... and so the goal is to build up and send out now i think i told you a few weeks ago um, when we get together as a church it creates certain situations and certain i don't even want to call them needs but certain situations where we're going to get together and some people have children and then you have to decide, well, are the children going to be in with us or are we going to teach the children? If we're going to teach the children, then maybe God would need to raise up some teachers for the children. And if the group gets to be more than 10 or 20 or 30 people, maybe you need an usher to help direct people. And, And so the idea is that. It's driven by how God provides for the church and and how God grows the church. So, you know, we don't want to ever do anything that, that God isn't doing. Uh, and because we believe that God guides and God provides. And so so when we come together, yeah, we say, hey, we could use help in the cafe, and we could use help here and there and stuff, but it's not to put a burden on anybody. It's just to get people involved because we have a certain group of people that comes together, and we want to serve one another so that we can be built up in our most holy faith to go out into the world and fulfill the Great Commission. And, and sometimes churches tip the balance too much towards the ministry of the church, and it 's just everything is about the church. you exist only for the church to grow and for our money to be more and for our building to be better and things like that and so we have to be careful we have to be very careful. We were very careful getting into this building we um, you know we waited a long time, eighteen years, so nobody can accuse us of being impatient. Uh, And then we were very careful about how we bought this building so that it didn't become a burden. You may have heard, I'm I'm way off on a tangent now, but you may have heard how some churches, uh, not many, but some churches have been foreclosed on because of the market. And you think, oh how could a terrible evil lender foreclose on a church? Well here's how it happens. It's 2002 and your property is worth a million dollars and you go out and you borrow eighty percent of that against your church because you want to do ministry and so now you owe eight hundred thousand to a bank who is sympathetic towards Christians and that's fine then it becomes two thousand and four and your million dollar church is only worth seven hundred thousand dollars because of the real estate mess and now you have a loan due at the end of five years you owe maybe on your million dollar loan you probably or where you borrowed 800,000 you probably still owe 700,000 and your church is only worth 700,000 but they can't lend you 700,000 because there's no equity so the bank says we can actually only refinance your church for 500,000 but you owe us 700,000 so as soon as you give us 200,000 we can refinance your loan at 500,000 and the church says we don't got 200,000 because we spent it on ministry and it's rough, and so you want to be careful. So we're, we tried to be careful. We didn't experience that, and I praise the Lord for it, you know, as in, in his leading. So, so I understand that churches sometimes are overbearing and burdensome. Hopefully we're not. We try not to be, but the bottom line is a Christian needs to be involved in a local church, and if they don't like the local church they're involved with, they need to find one that where they can be involved because it's just hard to show brotherly love and affection to Christians from all over the place when you're just at home all the time Uh, and and you don't uh, see anybody and you're never challenged to be around people that you wouldn't normally be around. Do you ever look around on a Sunday morning especially and think I would never be with these people? I mean we have Correctional officers who come and hang out with former inmates. We have officers uh, in the Navy who come and hang out with enlisted men. Um, it, it, you know, that's just some of the extremes. I mean, you look around and you think, man, these people are all weird. And then they're looking at you thinking, you're weird, you know. But that's where brotherly love lives. Um, verse 10, that you increase more and more. Always room for increase in your affection, the abundant life Jesus promised is an overflowing that never exhausts its source. The idleness of some of the Christians was a strain within the church. It was also something else it was hurting the witness of the church to the watching world. Non-believers have a knack for finding out and emphasizing what is wrong with Christians. In Thessalonica, they saw a few deadbeats mooching off of others and concluded that Christianity was flaky. They didn't want to quit their jobs and sit around all day waiting for Jesus to come back, nor did they want to join the church and have to support deadbeats who were doing that. Paul took up this aspect of the problem in verses 10 and 11. Verse 11, he says that you also aspire to lead a quiet life and mind your own business. Now, we use this phrase in a mostly negative way, but it's a very positive biblical exhortation. You're to be mindful of, Of your own affairs especially with regard to how they will be viewed by non believers like it or not not your life is a witness non-believers are looking at you to see what difference it makes to be a Christian does it make any difference in your home life or in your marriage or at work or in your work ethic or in your free time or anywhere else does it make a difference that you're a Christian because you're telling people they need to get saved and, and come to Christ. And, of course, we understand that from an eternal perspective, but they look at it from a practical level and say, well, what difference does it make? What difference do I see in you uh, that is positive? Uh, you know, did it save your marriage? Are you working harder now than you ever worked before? Um, you know, Or are you essentially the same person with the same work ethic and the same set of complaints that you were before? Verse 11, aspire to lead a quiet life, mind your own business, and work with your own hands as we commanded you. Paul had commanded them to work with their own hands. They could not accuse Paul of being confusing, of confusing them with all his talk of the rapture. They knew better than to come idlers. It seems Paul may have anticipated this. He talked to them about the rapture and was clear about it, and he said something like, but listen, that doesn't mean you should quit your jobs and mooch off of people. Be mindful and, and, and work with your own hands. And work with your own hands, it's a strong phrase, one that encourages hard work and industriousness. I remember when I first got saved, my ambition changed at work once I got saved. I actually began to work hard. I became a better employee, an honest employee. By the grace of God, I was super in ambition as I maintained my daily business. Um, I've told this story before, but one of the first things that happened is I got in trouble because my expense account went way down because I was honest about it for the first time. One of the first things they taught me when I went to work at this title company was how to pad my expense account and buy stuff for myself and Charge the company. It was one of those things where you had a—I forget the amount, but let's say it was four hundred dollars a month. That was your expense account. And they expended you. To, they expected you to pay, spend all of that in you know glad handing and public relations and all of that. And so you always did. And you know you just say, oh, I think I had lunch with so and so, and you didn't. You know you just kept the money. And, and so then I got saved, and I, I think my first expense account when I turned it in at the end of the month was like $95. And so they called me in. They go, what's, what's going on here? Uh, that, I said, well, and I, I was honest because my boss was a Christian. And I said, well, that's my honest expense account. I'm not lying and cheating anymore now that I'm a Christian. And the other boss, who wasn't a Christian, he says, you're making the rest of the people look bad. I said, I can't help it. He goes, buy something for yourself. I said, no, I'm not going to buy anything for myself. I said, I'll, j- I'll actually spend more money on clients. How's that? And they go, okay, but you know, you can't be doing this kind of thing, you know? So so I began, now I hated my job all the more because I thought this is crazy. There's nothing eternal about this. I still, I, but but I worked a lot harder and a lot more honestly than ever before. And so I could say, I wasn't doing it because of this. just the Holy Spirit was changing my heart. They could see that there was a change in me, and for me it was a change for the better, but for them it was a change for the worse because I had become more moral in an immoral world, and so it was pretty interesting. Simply put, Christianity ought to make a difference, and it ought to make you different. And then verse 12 sums up the whole section that you may walk properly toward those who are outside, that you may lack nothing. You may lack nothing means you are providing for yourself through honest, hard work. It doesn't mean you're going to get a superabundance of everything that you want. It means that you work and provide for yourself. Christianity energizes you to do more, not less. Working hard, minding and maintaining your own business is an important part of walking properly toward those who are outside. Properly is translated honestly, if uh, you have a King James version of the Bible. It's from a word that means becomingly or decor- de- de- decorously. No, decorous. How would you do that? Like decorum is the word. You've heard of the word decorum. It means suitable to the occasion or to your character. A Christian should have decorum, walking in all areas of life in a way that is suitable to your character and to the occasion. Non-believers are outside looking in; they're watching you in all your business, and by business I mean work, home, play, everywhere you are. They're window shopping, wondering if Jesus can deliver on His promise. We tell we tell people that Jesus does these amazing things, and then they watch you to see if He does do anything amazing. And and they're pretty critical. And it doesn't do any good for you to think that's not fair. It's just not fair for non-believers to look at me because they don't know the whole story. They're going to look at you anyway and they're non-believers. Of course they don't know the whole story. Uh and I'm not talking about anything fake or hypocritical. I'm just talking about letting the Holy Spirit live his life through you. There's there's a quote I like that puts the life of the Christian into perspective it's not uh, it's not from the Bible It's actually from J.R.R. Tolkien he says it's no bad thing to celebrate a simple life the simple quiet life of the Christian is cause for celebration living out the principles of biblical Christianity day-by-day in the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit is life as it was meant to be lived Uh, and uh, all of you who are Christians You've experienced this. I mean, you, uh, especially if you were saved as an adult, you you remember the remarkable changes that took place in your life. And and people noticed it. They said, man, you're different. What happened to you? Uh, You know, uh, what's going on with you? They might not always have thought of it as a positive thing, but they could tell. And, you know, the truth is we get old and crusty over time, and we need these uh, shots of you know spiritual adrenaline to remind us to return to our first love and to stir up the gifts that are in us and to to not be so arm folded well who cares you know I've got liberty in Christ you know they just need to tough it out because I've got the liberty and stuff you know we need to get back to that innocence and that that you know Remember when you were actually worried about what people thought because you didn't want them to think badly of Jesus You know that you thought I I want to represent Christ, and uh, and ah, R-rated movie. Who cares if they see me coming out of that? You know, what's the difference? Uh, I'm not going to go to another city and buy my booze. uh, Buy it right here in front of you. You know, I mean that kind of stuff. I'm, I'm not. You know, those are issues people need to deal with. You want a drink? Paul said, "Have it to yourself and to God. Don't stumble people. You want to go to movies? Be careful which movies you go to. If, if you insist on watching R-rated movies, watch them at home when nobody sees you. Go into the theater so that they can't wonder what it's like to be a Christian. You know, I mean, I, I'm just being honest with you and frank. You know, I mean, you probably we're all probably better off not watching R-rated movies. But I can't tell you what to do in that area. That's a it is a liberty, but it isn't a liberty to stumble people. You want to drink?" drink don't get drunk but it's not a liberty to stub, stumble other people and so just to have it to yourself and to God like you did when you first were saved and you were you were like hey I want I want people to know I'm a Christian and that my life has changed amen